I've gotten two calls in the last week awarding me a cruise. I hung up immediately when I heard the word cruise. I'm sure I could follow the directions somehow and maybe a few people squeak through and get what they have been promised the second they picked up the phone, but I'm not even going to try. Maybe you've sent your resume to a company for a job you've hoped for with the promise of follow-up but never got a call and you thought they forgot about me and you're probably right and so you give up and you move on. Maybe you got the job and they promised a pay increase after a year but a year came and went and you think they said they, they just said what they needed to say to get me and you might have been right and so you give up and you hang on and eventually you'll trust the Lord for a raise. There are many things we'll give up on in this life and sometimes we we really should because many things in this life are uncertain, they're shaky, they're fickle, they under-deliver, they are under-committed, they don't show up and they change. But be encouraged, God is nothing like us in these ways and so neither are his promises. Please open up to the book of Hebrews chapter 6, we'll be reading verses 13 through 20. Hebrews 6 13 through 20. The book of Hebrews is a letter, but it's really more like a sermon, a written sermon. It's a sermon on the Old Testament. It was written to first century Christians who were tempted to give up on Christ, and their specific temptation was to revert to merely Old Testament religion, minus the Savior that it pointed to who had come, an Old Testament understanding that missed the meaning of the Old Testament. Of course, there are for every person at every time who professes Christ, pressures pulling us away from Christ to other gospels that don't save, that don't remedy the problem of sin. Well, in this sermon, this written sermon, the author warns us that if we don't hold fast to Christ, that we don't belong to him. He says that we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. He says If we're his house, Christ's, if indeed we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. If we don't pay close attention, we'll drift away. And if we don't hold fast, then we were never his to begin with, he says. And in 6, 13 through 20, which we'll read in a moment, he does something that we also very much need. He's warned us, and in these verses, he encourages us to hold fast to Christ by convincing us of Christ's sheer dependability. We need warning and we need encouragement. And here too we'll come into another important image from the sea. We've had the image of drifting. We'll get another image in a moment. Hebrews 16, 6, starting in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, 
a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He says, when God desired to show more convincingly the unchangeable character, when God desired Consider that if you are his, God desires for you to know the absolute, unquestionable certainty of his character so that you might know the absolute, unquestionable certainty of his promises so that you might have absolute, unquestionable, certain hope. We need warning to know what will happen if we do not hold fast to Christ. In Hebrews is the book in the Bible famous for warning? Just read the thing. But Hebrews is also thick with encouragement. We need encouragement as well to know what will happen if we do, not, if we do hold fast. That we really will be safe. That our salvation, that our hope, that Christ really is a sure anchor. When this author, this preacher, wanted to encourage us to hold fast to Christ, he did reach out to that image of an anchor. And it is a perfect choice of image. Anchors are sort of in my blood. My mom and dad both grew up in rural Michigan cities near lakes, and both of their dads, it occurred to me this week, built a boat with their hands. Uh, One was from some kit, and the other one was built with the stuff he had. They took their kids out on the water. I have a brother, as I've shared with you all in different settings, uh, who's severely mentally handicapped. And while most things our family might have done outside, the family might do outside the home, uh, were very impractical for our family and undoable. But one thing that worked for all of us and worked for Tyler was the water. He loved the water, actually. He did great on the water. And so we were a family with a boat. That's where we went on the weekends. Little anchors lined the hutches in my home, pictures of anchors. Whenever I go home, somehow we always end up watching the deadliest catch. That thing is on a loop forever, is it not? Or is it just the holidays? Good night. Um, I think that the anchor thing stops in my family now that I have moved to the desert. Anchors have been around a long, long time. They're basic to sea travel as wheels are basic to land travel. They're pretty old and enduring a technology. Even our greatest ships with the most advanced technology will drop an anchor, a heavy weight to the bottom of the sea to keep it from drifting away. And whereas the wheel is an image of movement, the anchor is an image of stability, a great image for our hope. Seafaring vessels need anchors and so do souls. So for our encouragement in holding fast, let's consider the nature of our anchor this evening. Let's consider its strength, verses 13 through 18. An anchor isn't an anchor if it can't anchor what it's supposed to anchor. That makes sense? It's not an anchor if it can't anchor. It needs to be strong. The bigger the vessel, the bigger and heavier, and therefore the stronger the anchor. An anchor for the soul must be particularly strong. Consider God's promise to Abraham. 
Abraham had reason in his experience to believe that God's promise would not hold. God had promised that nations would come from him, but he didn't have a child, and he was way past childbearing age, and so was his wife. So both of them in private, though recorded by God and heard by him, laughed. But even though it sounded crazy, Abraham did believe God's promise because his reason for believing God's promise was stronger than any reason he had in his experience not to believe God's promise. The God who makes promises is the God who does not lie. It's contrary to his nature. And so in the same way that you and I can't jump and hit the moon, God can't lie. But when God wanted to give an assurance even stronger than his own word that doesn't change, that what is promised is true, he swore an oath by his own name. Now when you and I hear hear someone say, I swear... We have reason to be suspicious. It has a ring of shadiness to it. Is there a reason your word isn't good enough? I swear. And if someone says, I swear on my mother's life, or I swear on my grandmother's grave, they're bold-faced lying to you. Don't ever say, I'll swear on my mother's life. But in the ancient world, this is something that men would do in order to strengthen their own promises. They would swear an oath by something or someone greater than themselves. They were fallible, and so this was a way of conveying the certainty of their commitment. A notary public functions to guarantee a document in an important way. An oath in court of law provides a guarantee of a kind to the testimony of a witness. But even these are commitments of mere people sealed by oaths made by mere people. But here we have God swearing by God. By two unchangeable things for a double layer of unchangeability. The only thing more unchanging than something that's unchanging is two things combined that are both themselves unchanging. Nothing is that strong in this life that we know besides God. This kind of permanence is completely foreign to us. And kids learn it real quick. Toys. My son was asking me the other day about Black Friday. And... uh, we explained it's where a lot of stuff is cheaper. There's more to say. And he goes, oh, it's, I don't want to buy anything on Black Friday. It'll all break. You know? So we've sort of trained our kids that uh, anything they get that's theirs, that's a toy, has a lifespan on it that they get to discover. Um, and the more moving, for every moving part, it's cut in half. So the Buzz Lightyear that got three or four stars on Amazon will last about an hour. Good night. Expecting things to fail is part of living wisely in the world. When you get a little older, you realize that guarantee means we'll replace it if and when it fails. It's the best we can do. And when you're a full-blown adult, it's the roof. We're doing some roof work here at the church. So I asked Ian today, I said, Ian, okay, so you have a bazillion dollars in limitless design options. What would be the most secure roofing solution imaginable? He's probably wondering if someone cut a huge check to the church for a roof or something. He said a seamless biodome bubble made of materials from the shuttle. It's like you've been thinking about it. And of course, even the things we make strong enough to go into space are eventually decommissioned. They have a lifespan too. Well, God's word doesn't have a lifespan, at least one that ever ends. 
And while part of living wisely in this world is understanding the relative durability of things, knowing that one thing may be stronger than another, but nothing is not breakable, part of living wisely with respect to eternity is understanding the utter durability of God's character and his word. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God's promises don't break because God doesn't break his promises. And God doesn't break his promises because God doesn't break. His word is tied to his character, which does not change. And that was encouraging for Abraham, and it's encouraging for us just the same. It can be hard to wait, but we are not the first ones to wait for God's promises to come to fruition. So be encouraged to hold fast to Christ, knowing that God's promises concerning Christ are certain and unbreakable. They are strong. We have a strong anchor. Now let's consider this anchor's reach. We've considered its strength. Let's consider its reach. A really strong anchor, anchor that can't reach the seabed is useless. It's worse than useless. It's dead weight. To anchor an anchor must have reach. There are several YouTube videos uh, of giant vessels with obnoxiously huge anchors and obnoxiously huge chains uh, dropping anchor and things getting out of control and like the thing spinning so fast that a fire starts. And uh, apparently, this is my guess, it never hits bottom because when it gets done, the thing just rips off. I guess if uh, the boat's pulling too much and the current's too much and the rope isn't long enough or the chain isn't long enough, you're in trouble. It's got to have enough reach. Look up those videos. The deeper the sea, the longer needs to be the reach of the chain that holds the anchor. So let's consider the reach of our anchor. Verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. An anchor that reaches into the inner place behind a curtain is a super weird image if you don't have any biblical context for it. What's the curtain, what inner place, and what's an anchor doing there? They don't go there. But with biblical background, there could be nothing more encouraging than this. It's a perfect reach for those who are as deep out in sin as we are. The inner place behind the curtain is the inner place of the presence of God, behind the curtain that separates us from that presence. A curtain representing, that is hung, representing our guilt and our shame and our separation from God because of sin. Eden was an inner place of God's presence, but we sinned and so were sent out of the garden never to return to that place. Guarded it was by angels with flaming swords. And in the story of the Bible, God teaches us about what salvation would require in a variety of ways, and one of them is through the tabernacle and the temple, which had an inner place to be entered on only very careful terms. 
guarded by a curtain, sealed off because humanity is sinful. The curtain represents a barrier more significant than any wall in this world or any chasm or any ocean in this world. The distance between a holy God and sinful humans. Well, an anchor for a boat needs to reach the bottom of the sea. But an anchor for the soul will need to reach all the way into heaven. All the way from where we are deep in sin, so very far from God, all the way to heaven and into the inner place of God's presence. A huge anchor that can't reach the bottom of the sea is no use. And a beautiful anchor that can't reach this place is of no use to us either. And consider that there are many big and beautiful anchors on offer to us in the world for our souls. Many religions and systems of morality and living and busyness that promise all kinds of peace and oneness and satisfaction. But if they cannot get you into the the presence of God, then you're still on the wrong side of the curtain and you're not safe. Their spiritual painkillers is all that they are, masking the pain and addicting you to the grave at the same time. You may know this firsthand, having trusted deeply in another book or another God or another Savior, only to know the continuing burden of sin and guilt that is never lifted if God has given you a heart to sense your need. And maybe that's what led you here. Any anchor without Christ isn't strong enough, and any anchor without Christ does not reach far enough. So becoming a Christian means laying hold of Christ and holding fast to Christ as the only anchor that is strong enough for you and that can reach from you into the presence of God and take you there. So let's be encouraged to know how strong our anchor is and how far it reaches. We've considered its strength. We've considered its reach. Now let's consider its shape. Its shape. Anchors come in different shapes, different designs. The size of a vessel and the type of seabed will determine the needed shape of the anchor. You've got anchors for hard ground and for soft ground, anchors for large vessels, anchors for small vessels. They're designed to fall in a certain way, and to grab the ground in a certain way. And an anchor for a fishing boat might be as simple as a cute round weight called a mushroom anchor. There's the, golly, I hope I'm saying it right, Admiralty anchor. Is that how, is that how you say it? This is the famous one, the ancient anchor, used throughout history in ships for centuries until more recently when we started to get creative. Now this anchor is used mostly on arms, it's tattoos, okay, so that anchor, the Admiralty anchor, you've got the, uh, the stockless anchor, the grapnel, the North Hill, the Delta, the Danforth, the Bruce anchor, otherwise called the claw. Well, here's the kind of anchor that can secure the soul. Are you ready? Verse 20, Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Melchizedek. How about that? That's harder to pronounce if I didn't know how to pronounce it. Anchor has a very special design. And it's the only one that can enter into the inner place of God's presence. 
and not get dislodged. It can actually bring us there. So let me explain how this one works. But before I do, let me say that we almost always, as of custom, do not develop complex things in the last point of a sermon. But look at the last word of my text. It's Melchizedek. I'm just going to do it, and it's worth it, okay? It's a good anchor. A basic fact of Christianity is that not just anyone can go into God's presence. God's holiness is so good and pure that it obliterates every impurity and sin. That's how good God is. No sinful human can get past the curtain and into the inner place of God's presence. God doesn't want his presence spoiled. Another basic fact of Christianity is that God is committed to bringing sinners into his presence. So how? Well, that's the question that the whole Bible unfolds an answer to. So let me give you the long answer, and then I'll give you a simple answer. The long answer is this. Jesus went behind the curtain as a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Is that compelling? See, in the Old Testament, God taught that his his people about what it takes to be in his presence. He set aside the the Levites as a priesthood. The Levites would mediate God's presence. They served as a go-between God and the people. And since sin is a reality, they needed sacrifices and a sacrificial system for God's presence to be mediated. And the Levites handled this. The problem is that these Levite priests were men and they were sinful and so they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. But then the sacrifices that they offered for the people didn't even really cover all of the sin the people had. It wasn't enough blood. There was never enough blood to cover sin. Human sin was too serious for the blood of animals to satisfy. They had to offer sacrifices over and over again like setting and resetting an anchor that wouldn't hold. It didn't work. The Levitical priesthood was like a temporary hack intended to further sharpen our understanding of the the kind of problem that we have and the kind of anchor that ultimately would hold. And that's where Melchizedek comes in. You see, long ago, before even Moses, before God appointed the Levitical priesthood, we meet Melchizedek in the time of Abraham. We know very little about the guy. It's a cryptic scene. If Genesis were a movie with no sequel, we would think it was a total mistake that it ended up in the story. On the space of one paragraph in Genesis 14, if you turn there tonight, you'll read about a meeting between Abraham and a man named Melchizedek, a king priest of Salem. Salem, which may have ended up being Jerusalem. He was a priest of the Most High God, it says, which is interesting because this is long after the days of Noah. God comes to Abraham, Abraham who doesn't know God and calls him out. He's a pagan. And here's here's a king of Salem who's called a priest of the Most High God. He blesses Abraham. He says a blessing over Abraham. And then Abraham pays this guy a tenth, a tithe. This guy doesn't have a genealogy like most important people in the narrative, And his death isn't recorded. The story just moves on. But this encounter isn't a way a key to the Bible. In fact, the most quoted psalm in the book of Psalms, Psalm 110, speaks about the Messiah, the future king, the son of David, being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. What on earth? Jesus is a priest from that order. We need a priest, but a priest better than 
any of the sons of Abraham or the sons of Levi. We need a better priesthood. Here's the simple answer. Jesus died on a cross for sinners, suffering the penalty they deserve. In other words, our Melchizedekian anchor is shaped like a cross. God has put other anchors before us in the course of his story to show how much is the weight of our sin and how much we are up against. So that when Jesus arrives as our great high priest with the perfect sacrifice of himself that he offers, we know that's exactly what we need. I'm sure you caught the news today out of San Bernardino County. An unbelieving friend of mine who lives in that area said this on Facebook. He asked, this is getting hard to take. I feel like our species is sick. When and how will we stop this? I feel like our species is sick. When you can't, you know, when the, when the mass shootings are sort of blurring together, you know you've got a problem with the species. Uh, he's asking the right question. Uh, and if you back up and look at history and look around the world, murder is actually not an isolated matter. It's not an aberration. It's just really more normal. And it's terrible. Jesus Christ is the only answer. No other answer or anchor will do for the soul. The weight of sin is too great. This anchor doesn't break. It has reach. And it's the right kind of anchor, the right kind of priest for the right kind of problem. It's an anchor for the soul that is truly about, it's truly able to secure the soul. So when our high priest Jesus Christ died, the curtain in the temple in Jerusalem was torn God signaling to us that through the death of this priest offering himself as a sacrifice, there is now nothing between. There is now no guilt standing between, no condemnation inhibiting the relationship between God and man, those who would entrust themselves to this Savior. Do the certainty of God's promises, which haven't come about yet, seem like no match for the certain difficulty that you're experiencing right now, whatever the pressures are that are on you to give up on Christ? It may be that you have not understood properly the character of God's promises, which do not exclude difficulty, but include difficulty on the way to their fulfillment. But if you know what the Bible promises, you still need to be encouraged in understanding the character of of God himself. It's possible to know the character of the promises of the Bible, but to miss the character of the God who makes them and so not to believe them firmly enough, to hang on and to hold fast when the winds and the waves get bad. It doesn't matter very much how tightly we hold to an anchor if that anchor won't hold us. And we won't keep holding if we don't believe that it will hold us. If it's not strong enough, if it doesn't have enough reach, if it can't Hold the ground of heaven and bring us there. So be encouraged tonight to hold fast to Christ because God doesn't lie and Christ is a sure and a steadfast anchor for the soul. And be warned as well, for if you let go, you will drift. And in drifting, you are not safe. So be encouraged. But one more thing on the topic of encouragement. 
And those, as those who have great reason to hold fast, encourage one another in the same. Apparently it's not enough for us um, for Christ to have died and for us to be told this. God himself swears on an oath to make surely certain that Abraham has every reason to be certain of his hope. And this author writes to encourage his readers to be sure of their hope. And he tells us to encourage each other to be sure of our hope. We're instruments of encouragement in each other's lives. And this author will actually say, I know your life and I know your work and encourage them on the basis of what he's seen in their life. But the the balance of his encouragement is actually not to point at them, but to point to God himself and to his character. And then he tells us to do the same in Hebrews 10. Hold fast, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. A reference to God's character again. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near.